Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and aren't we glad that Jesus shows us the way to press on through trials and sufferings? I'm so grateful for that. We're going to talk today to Jonathan Parnell about Hebrews chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles, grab it. And always helpful to get a piece of paper and a pencil because that's when you do Bible study. Jonathan is the senior pastor at Cities Church here in the Twin Cities. Always happy to have him on the show. Jonathan, let's dig into Hebrews 12. Let's do it. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Bill. Yeah. What do you want to, how do you want to go about this? This is a great passage about enduring trials and not growing weary and losing heart. I know there's a lot of people today that are thinking, oh, that sounds like me. I'm a little weary. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think you said it. I mean, the the, the theme of the chapter is endurance. And that's the, there's that, you know, the famous uh, metaphor there, the beginning of chapter 12 of running, endurance, running, running the race set before us, run with endurance. And that, that metaphor, I think, continues through chapter 12 into the section here on discipline. And so um, I think that we need to keep that in mind. That's what the writer is trying to do. He's trying to encourage these early Christians to to not give up the race, to yep. not drop. Um, because some were, and some were mm. tempted to do that. And so he's he's writing to encourage them to keep on. You know, whenever I see the word discipline, Jonathan, I always wonder— what does discipline look like? And if someone is in a position of uh, feeling like they're, they're, they're suffering a little bit, I think, is that discipline or is that just suffering? And what does discipline look like? Yeah, I mean, that is the question, right? Is yeah. what, what exactly is yeah. the discipline of God? Let's be joyful about discipline, right? Because yeah. God rebukes yeah. and punishes all whom he loves. Yeah. And, that, and that's where I think what's helpful, um, to, I, I think— the context here with endurance really kind of helps us steer us in the right direction. So you notice if you look into verse 3, um, he tells us to consider, to think carefully about Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. I'm reading from the ESV. Look to Jesus, consider Jesus. He tells us to look to Jesus in, in verse 2. He repeats that same idea in verse 3, but it's intensified. He's, you know, look, look intently, think carefully about Jesus so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And those are the words that have to do with running. There's mm. a, I read a great commentator who said there's evidence, um, I think even in Aristotle, that in classical Greek and ancient Greek, these words were used to refer to runners who dropped after running because of fatigue. And so the, this metaphor continues here. So in my case, it'd be about a block, block and a That's half. That's right. Mine too. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> I'm not a runner. Let's just be clear about that. <laughs> and runners, if you do run, this this is going to be a passage that makes most sense to you, I think. Um, but I think we all can track with it. You get tired, you know, you have um, different challenges um, that tempt you to say, I'm done. You know, I got blisters on my feet. I got a cramp in my side. Yeah. I, I, I'm just, I mean, it's taking too long. I want I want to be finished with this. And he's saying, don't do that. Look to Jesus. Don't be weary. Don't be faint-hearted. And then in verse 4, this is what's interesting to me. 
He goes in verse 4 and says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And I think in a natural reading of the text, that just seems a bit like, where does that come from? I agree, Jonathan. The intensity yeah. gets cranked up there. Oh, does it ever? And I, I can't explain that one. And, and, and I, think, I think what helps us with that is to think again about the context. So you have these early Christians who were being tempted. Some had dropped from the race right, of faith. Others were being tempted to drop. And, and the reason why, what they were, would have been saying is, it's too hard. Like I, the suffering, I didn't sign up for this. This is, this is too difficult. It's too challenging. Um, I can't do it. And so what the writer, I think, is starting to do in verse 4 here, he, he begins to give us, I think, a defense for why the Christian life is hard, why it's difficult. And the first thing he says is, hey, before you get down that, that before you get too far down that road of thinking about how hard it is, and, and the race is hard, it's tough. He, he acknowledges that. He says here, struggle against sin. He uses that word resisting. Um, I mean, that's those are strong words. It is is there's you know active opposition to sin. You're wrestling with sin. The word for struggle there is is one of those Greek words that we we recognize. Antagonizomai. Ooh, only you like that. It's, yeah, it's, and it means what it means in English. It's in, antagonism against sin. Yeah, active hostility against yeah. sin, and that. That takes a toll after a while, you know? And so these, these Christians are like, hey, we want to be done with this. And before he, he really gets into the defense of why the Christian life is difficult, he says, just, just put it all in perspective. This is really my perspective. He says, look, <laughs> it's hard, but you've not, you've not yet suffered the way that Jesus suffered. You know, think about what he went through and think about, what he endured. And that's the that's not just the suffering that he experienced, it's the fact that God brought him through that suffering. And and his suffering is, is and there's a whole thing here we could get into about comparing suffering, because we're not supposed to do that, right? Compare suffering. I don't believe we are. Yeah. No, we don't. Well so this is uncomfortable, right? Because we we know we shouldn't uh, as Christians look at other people's sufferings and compare them and 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 uh, but yeah that's exactly what the writer's telling us to do. So I think we have to think carefully here with biblical wisdom, what is our position when it comes to comparing suffering? Thank you for bringing that up, Jonathan Parnell, because I've often heard people say in the midst of their suffering, I always am aware that there's someone worse off than me. Okay, and I think that is good for perspective. Okay, good. So here, here's, here's, here's the way, here's the position, and this is, is what I explained to our congregation, is that when it comes to comparing suffering, and we compare suffering with the result that we we basically land in this position that our suffering is worse than others. Don't do that, right? Don't don't. And there's the story I I told of, of a, this is a negative example, but I remember years ago I was in college and my my baby cousin was born. Uh, she passed away at five months old and spent her entire life at uh, Duke Children's Hospital in Durham, North Carolina. And, uh, you know, you, you're there. We, we, we visited her often. Her family, her mom and dad were there every day, of course. And, you know, you're, you spend a lot of time in the, the waiting room, family room. Yeah. And you see other families who have sick children. And, and it was, a, I remember this instance, there was a family, an 18-year-old uh, a boy had suffered a traumatic brain injury and uh, he met his parents and they were there and they're waiting to get news. And he's in the ICU, but they got it was communicated to them that he would not survive, which is just horrible, you know, just extremely sad. And yet one of the parents, after hearing that news, 
in there with my family and who have their own grief because of my cousin. He had made the comment that um, my cousin was only a few months old, but they had invested 18 years Ooh. in their son, which is sick. You know, like we want to be gracious to people get it. In, in, in their pain when they speak I from pain. It. But that was a that's a foolish comment, you know. Yeah. So, so, so that's the sort of thing when any time that we compare suffering uh, and have a and and land with this result that ours is worse in a way that that minimizes or dismisses the pain of others. That's never do that. That's not. But yet, if it helps us, if we're served by remembering in the midst of our pain that there are other people who have suffered worse and God brought them through. Then that I think that helps us. Yeah, and I think that's what the writers telling us to do it, here. It serves as an inspiration, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, because I have had some uh, even heaviness starting this morning that I thought, well, I, I'm I'm not going to make light of the Lord's discipline. And Solomon in Proverbs talks about don't fear it or disdain it. So yeah. if discipline comes my way or your way or Wyatt's way, we have to say. I, I I can't fear this or I can't disdain it. Yeah, and that's and that's that perspective, Bill, that you're talking about there, which is I think what the writers I mean, this is he really he turns the tables on us in a way that's just so wonderful where where you know they're 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 suffering. These Christians are suffering and, and they're getting ready to quit. They're they're tired, they're weary. Um and he says in verse five, Well you this is what's happened and and in some translations it's is translated as a rhetorical question. Uh, in other translations, it's just a statement, an indictment. You have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. And he's referring there to Proverbs chapter 3, mm-hmm. verses 11 and 12, which he quotes, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. And that word for weary is the same word that was just used there in verse 3. Verse 6, he says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline. Verse 7 is where he starts to explain the proverb. He says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. And then he he goes on and explains more. Uh, I'll just read that if it's okay. Verse 7, For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Yeah. Jonathan, 100% of that is love, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. 100%. It, it's love, and it's, it's loving affirmation of who yeah. we are. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that's so, so fascinating to me is that these, these Christians were scratching their heads. Why is it so hard? And the writer basically says, look. The people who should be scratching their heads are not you who are suffering. It should be those who are not suffering. Because look what the Bible says. Yeah. Those, those who are his sons, yeah. they, they receive his discipline. He the beloved suffers. Yeah. Yeah. And so I just get, I, I'm just trying to put my, my, myself in the shoes of these first hearers in light of the difficulties that surrounded them and to hear this and how it just completely flips this whole, the whole way of thinking. Um, is that what is when it's hard? And it is hard. The race is hard. The life of faith is hard. But to know that when it's hard, when we are experiencing God's discipline, which I think it means anything we have to endure, mm-hmm. it's not just corrective. It's not just in response to sin. It's anything that's hard. Because mm-hmm. he says there in verse verse seven, it is for discipline 
that you have to endure. Endure what? Endure whatever requires endurance. Mm-hmm. Whatever's hard. Whatever you have to endure, God's discipline is behind that. And behind God's discipline is, is the fact that God is saying to you, I am your Abba, you are my child. How about this, Jonathan Parnell? This is exactly the message I needed to hear today. How about that? Nice, yeah, nice going, brother. Yeah, well, here's, here's this passage. I just preached this passage. We've been going through Hebrews all year. And this is one of those passages where, you know, you always want the Holy Spirit to preach the sermon to you as the preacher before yes. you get to preach it. Yes. And this is one of those one of those weeks where all oh, that happened to me. <laughs> I, I, I had just been meditating and, and you know, and, and emotional. It was one of those sermons where I, I, I was emotional in the pulpit um, because of just I, I, I know people in our in our church who are going through hard things. Yeah. And to be able to say to them, the hard thing you you're going through is God saying to you. You're my child, and he's got a purpose in it. That's the other thing to bring out here. Like this is, it's not, you know, we, we have to understand like the sovereignty of God means everything when it comes to this to this idea of discipline. It's not that we suffer, we have hardship, and then God comes in after the fact to clean things up and right. repair things. He's actually at work in the very midst of that hard thing. Mm-hmm. I sometimes say in prayer, Father, thank you that you have information about my life that I don't have. Yes, that's good. Because <laughs> yes. otherwise, in the midst of a discipline or a trial or a suffering, if, if I didn't think that he was completely sovereign and completely loving, I'd be a little panicked. Yes, absolutely. Because yeah. sovereign- like you say, hard, diff- life is hard. Yeah. 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 That's it. That's it. The I should patent that. Life is hard. <laughs> I wonder this- you think I could? Yeah, you go for it. Uh, I'm going to. Yeah. yeah, I think it would resonate. It would resonate, and that's been true for a long time, and it's true here uh, to these first readers of Hebrews. Um, well, when I think of friends that I've had when they were being disciplined by their parents or maybe their parents were extra strict with them, putting a lot of tight boundaries around them when they were young, they hated it. Mm-hmm. Then they get to college and they brag about their parents. That's right. That. <laughs> they brag about how tough their parents were, almost like a badge of honor. And I think this is what God's doing with us. Yeah. He's, he's giving us a full uh, life uh, in him and he's pouring his riches out on us. And sometimes we see them as incredible hardship because they are. Yeah, they are, and that's yeah. where the perspective is. You know, he the, he tells us here, he disciplines us for our good. And verse ten, for our good. What do you mean? Well, that we may share in his holiness. And he's talking this. That's the conformity to the image of Jesus. That we are being made more and more like Jesus through the discipline, through the hard things that God either orchestrates or allows to come into our lives. You know, God. He doesn't have any direct contact with. He doesn't have any direct contact with sin. He doesn't make, call sin, make sin. He's not the author of sin, but he does permit, in his sovereignty, hard things, sinful things mm-hmm. like the cross of Jesus Christ to happen. And it's through those things that he accomplishes his purposes. And the purpose here, he says straight up, it's just so clear. The purpose for the discipline is our conformity to the image of Jesus, our holiness, our growth in holiness. And then in verse 11, you know, because you imagine hearing that saying, yes, but it's still hard. And he says, look, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. 
Putting in perspective, later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Mm-hmm. And that's what we need. We need that perspective. I'm with Jonathan Parnell. We're talking about a powerful passage in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 to 11. If you've got your Bible and you just joined us, you're going to want to go back and hear this message from the beginning because it is resonating with me and hopefully it is with you as well. Jonathan has written an amazing book called Mercy for Today, a daily prayer from Psalm 51, which I highly recommend. I've got a copy and it's all dog-eared. So we're going to take a break and be right back with Jonathan in just a minute. Hi, this is Bill Arnold, host of the Afternoon Show. My friend and colleague, Susie Larson, will say that even when you feel discouraged, God is still there. He's still good. He cares about you and is in the business of fixing what is broken to make you whole. Experience his peace today. This month, thanks to our friends at Thomas Nelson, Faith Radio is giving away 100 copies of Susie Larson's new book, Waking Up to the Goodness of God, 40 Days Toward Healing and Wholeness. You can enter to win yours right now at MyFaithRadio.com. Connecting Faith to Life, Faith Radio. So glad to be back with Jonathan Parnell. We're studying Hebrews chapter 12 verses 3 to 11, and he has been in a sermon series with his church. He's the teaching pastor at Cities Church here in the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota. And I tell you, Jonathan, Hebrews is not an easy book to tackle. It's not. We've been in it all year long, (laughs) and it's not been long enough. We need more time. Do your people at your church still like you? They, they, yeah, I think so. (laughs) Because this is, Hebrews is tough. (laughs) It's a challenging book. Yeah. yeah, we could spend a lot, a lot more time in it. We've been trying to do uh, not too big a chunks at a time, but, but uh, it's, but it had, you know, any time you read a whole book, even in one sitting, or you work through it in a concentrated kind of year long series, you you begin to see these connections, and it, the whole thing just begins to make more sense to you. And I think we've experienced some of that. Yeah, well, I want to talk about a couple of verses uh, in more depth, if that's all right with you. In verse three, it says, "Consider him." who endured such opposition from sinners. So clearly Jesus endured the hostility of sinners so that uh, his people would have an example. Right. So he's, he's shown, shown us how it's done. Yeah. And he is, he is an example here. Just like in chapter 11, we have the heroes of faith, yeah. you know, the, hall, the hall of faith there. Uh, so many of these old Testament saints are examples, but they all culminate in Jesus as the ultimate example of one who endures in the midst of suffering. And, of course, the verse 11, and this is what I want to focus on now for a little bit, is no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Mm -hmm. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Jonathan, if we don't keep that last part of the verse in mind, we're in trouble. Oh, it's, I mean, isn't this, is it what's amazing to me about, I mean, so much is amazing to me about it, but, I mean, that's just, that was true. You know, a couple thousand years ago, it's true today. Like we all resonate with that. Yeah, totally. discipline's painful. It's painful. It's not pleasant. We don't relish discipline. We don't relish hardship. But it's that perspective that we need. That that knowing that later, it's gonna there's gonna be a a produce, uh, a reaping of the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I'm relieved that Scripture says 
that no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think we sometimes try to encourage each other or diminish things like, well, you know, it's, it's, um, maybe it's not as bad as you think. And uh, you've got a good attitude. So hang in there and versus what you're going through. That's painful. Yeah. Exactly. That's what Scripture teaches. It does. We should never minimize the pain, and and this is what can be dangerous with the comparison of suffering, right? Like we, any time there's hardship, um, we need to appropriately, I mean, pray through it. We need to weep. We need to grieve. We need to we need to to make to make sure that we're not dismissing anything that's yep. difficult. Bring that to the Lord, and and what Hebrews twelve would tell us is that again, connecting the hardship, it is it is. It is for discipline that you have to endure the hardship. So connecting the hardship to discipline, which then connects it to God as our Father. And I think that goes not just for the hard thing. It goes for the bad. It goes for burnt toast. Yeah. It, it goes for it goes for being late for an appointment. It goes for anything that makes the running hard. Anything that makes it difficult, cloudy day, a rainy day, or whatever it is. If it, if it feels hard... If it's not a gust of wind in the sails of your discipleship, if it if it slows you down, okay, what well, we have to stop and say, all right, it is for discipline that we have to endure. I, I, I think we should take a very expansive view of the discipline of God. One of the things that I'm reading in verse 11, Jonathan, is the, later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Uh, experiencing something and being trained by it are, I think, are two different things. Yeah, yeah. I'm not yeah. sure I can explain that, but well, I think it's it's about. I mean, it's the framing. It's to you know, it's one thing if you're going to go through hardships and, and you know you're just trying to keep your head above water. You're trying to make it. When you when you stop and you think, no, God is sovereign. God is at work here as my Father. And there's a purpose actually in the hardship, which, you know, it is, I think this is clear in the passage. God is treating you as sons. It's not after it's all said and done and God, you know, then comes in and starts to clean things up. That's when, no, no, no. It's actually in the, in the worst of the moments that, yeah. that, you, that is when God is treating you as sons. So in that painful part, that's, God is active there Yeah. to affirm that we're his children. Yeah. Um, he disciplines us, and in the perspective, the training piece, which I, which I, I, there's a quote by Jonathan Edwards that I came across a few years ago, kind of on this topic. Okay, suffering, sovereignty, um, God's good purpose, and um, I wrote it down in my prayer notebook. I read it every day, and he taught. He 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 <laughs> he's talking about this, first the sovereignty of God, right? Which is what we have to, we have to work think about this. But he's, this is what he says. You know, just tell you the quote. Yeah, well, please. All right, so this is what he says. He goes, um, every atom of the universe is so managed by Christ so as to be most to the advantage of the Christian. Every particle of the air and every ray of the sun so that he in the other world, and he's talking about us, us in the new creation. When it's all said and done, we're in the new creation. So that he in the other world, when he comes to see it, shall look over all of his vast inheritance with amazing, surprising joy. Wow. So imagine, right? There's going to be a day, there's going to be a day where we can sit back 
having been trained by these things, having gone through and experienced all these hardships, we'll sit back and we'll see what God was doing in all of it. Mm. And it will make us happy, eternally <laughs> joyful. Yeah. Uh, a harvest of righteousness and peace. I love that. That's it. I think that I think the the the, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now, sometimes in, that that happens in this life, right? There are times when, um, if you live long enough, you come through suffering, um, you're, you're going to be able to look back on things and they know what God was doing, right? When I was that age and I went through that thing, that's not the case for everything. There are some things that will not make sense to us this side of heaven, right? And so then, what is that peaceful fruit of righteousness in the new creation? I think it's the capacity to have joy, deep, deep, deep joy that we would not have apart from the suffering, right? This, this, our momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal way of glory beyond comparison. It's, it's that kind of idea. Inconceivable joy. Inconceivable joy. I mean, joy. there's no way Goodness. to describe it. We don't, we can't even. No, yeah. we can't. Yeah. Uh, but it's going to be there. That's oh, a promise. Yes. Uh, to me, that's going to help, um, Fire, just like yesterday on the program, I was talking about what wires together, fires together. So when we think mm-hmm. of suffering, we should also uh, think of this righteousness and peace that's going to come along with it. Because yeah. that's the beauty. Because um, apart from that, we're going to take suffering and we're only going to see the painful part of it and the unpleasant part of it. And if we can say, oh, I'm in the midst of suffering, but I know that it's going to produce in me something indescribable. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that gives us the, the encouragement to keep running. I mean, that's where, you know, in verse 12, therefore lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight the paths for your feet. He's going back to that running metaphor back in, in verses one and two. Yeah. And so it's almost like he has this little parenthetical of, let me explain to you this idea of suffering. Let me, let me give you a defense for why the Christian life is so hard. He makes the point of God's discipline, God affirming his fatherly care for us, his love for us, his sovereign purpose for us. And he says, okay, now that you, now that we, we talked about that, run, run, keep running, right? Yeah. Jonathan Parnell is my guest. And uh, I'm looking at verse 9, Jonathan, just as we wrap things up. It says, moreover, we all have had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? So my, my question is, uh, for those listening to the program right now going, am I all the way in? Am I fully surrendered? And if not, how do I take that next step? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it, what I, I said yesterday after preaching this passage, mainly thinking about Christians because this is a passage for Christians, I said to folks who are in the room, if you've not yet given your life to Jesus— and I, I tried to say it humbly. Just what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> like, yeah. Look at the look Point at blank. The, oh, look at the love of God yeah. in this passage. The care of God. Overwhelming. Overwhelming. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, when do you wrap up this uh, sermon series in Hebrews? Oh, we're going to have a Hebrews Advent series. So it's, it's <laughs> Hebrews all year long. So, okay. Good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Through the end of the year. Yeah. Well, if I wanted to say uh, hear more of the teaching in the book of Hebrews, where would I go? Is it available on your website? At it is available on our website, citieschurch.com. Citieschurch.com. Yep, C-I-T-I-E-S, yep. church.com. And you can always join us for worship on Sundays at 10 a.m. 
That's yeah. if you live in the Twin Cities. If you live in the Twin Cities. Yeah. That's yeah. right. You can, yeah. we, we live stream. You can check it out online. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Well, Jonathan, it's really nice to have you here. And if you go to citieschurch.com, you can uh, learn more about the teaching uh, of Jonathan Parnell and learn about his book, which is great. I have a copy of Mercy for Today, a daily prayer from Psalm 51, and I love it. And uh, I'm going to look forward to having you on the show again soon. Come back. That's a joy to be here. Okay, thanks. Jonathan Parnell, once again, has been my guest. We're going to take a little break, and we're going to be back with lots more in just a minute. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. I'm so looking forward to talking about salvation today with Dr. Greg Borgon. We're going to actually discuss the trajectory of salvation, which he says occurs in four stages. <laughs> He's got my attention. Greg, welcome back. That's good to be back. Yeah. So salvation occurs in four stages do explain. Yeah, sure. First of all, let me explain uh, for the sake of clarity what we mean by trajectory. Trajectory is actually the the pattern of flight of something that's thrown or cast or shot for that matter. So if you can picture a trajectory from left to right um, about salvation, what we probably don't realize is that salvation begins prior to conversion. Actually, it begins, in my view, prior to somebody actually being born. So when we talk about uh, pre-conversion, for instance, what we're talking about is the fact that none of us are here by mistake, not here by happenstance or coincidence, that we were on the heart of God before we ever came to be, that God made provision even though we were created in in original sin, we're still created in his image even though it's been marred by sin. So the trajectory towards that moment of conversion and then what happens after that um, begins actually before you were even born. Mm -hmm. So we have not only this image of God that has been marred, but also as we um, are brought into this world or just before we're brought into the world, when God superintends our formation in our mother's womb and he knew us before ever were, he set the number of days we'd walk this earth. Uh, and that he also, it says in Ephesians 2.10, as we've talked about in the past, that God has prepared in advance a unique purpose for our life. So all of that we come into this world with. So the idea is, is that now we have also come into an understanding that there's something beyond us. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, we find that it says that God has placed eternity in our minds. In other words, here's what the passage says. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to obey, to be busy with. He has, and now here's the important point, Bill. He has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So, in other words, general revelation is what we're talking about, that we have the sense of eternal that compels every human being, no matter where you live or when you lived or what ethnic group you've come from to ask three essential questions probably repeatedly throughout your life. Why am I here? 
Am I making any progress? And what I do have any lasting impact? So embedded in us is the sense of the eternal that, that drives us to, to a level of, or to a desire for significance in our life. So we become aware that there is something beyond ourselves that has compelled us to do those kinds of things, to reach out for something beyond us, to understand that there's something, um, whether we call it a divine creator or we call it something, we just have that sense that there's something beyond us. And so over the course of time, we God sends these agents to us who bring us one step closer to the point where we're ready to go ahead and, and consider the gospel. And so at, you can even start from a position of agnosticism or atheism, but the fact of the matter is God may send a person, may expose us to a circumstance, we may, be, uh, in, in, we may have an encounter that takes us one step closer, that compels us to ask important questions about the meaning of life, mm-hmm. if you will. And those incremental steps are meant to lead us to a point where we seriously consider the gospel. And we always celebrate, you know, the person who leads somebody across the line. But what they don't realize that that person that led you across the line stands on the shoulders of many people, circumstances, and event that God brought our way to bring us to that point. Of course, it's, it's not going to be um, demanded of us. It's not going to be determined for us because we have this amazing gift called free will that gives us the ability to respond to these various circumstances. But they start to accumulate over time. We start gaining a gradual understanding of things that matter. And then we finally get to uh, a point of, of conviction. And it's interesting that when you read in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9 and 10, it says, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Mm, I like that. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Mm-hmm. Then you read in John sixteen eight, and when he comes, he will convict. He's talking about the Holy Spirit here. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So that conviction is in us. God doesn't shame us into a relationship. He convicts us, hopefully, towards a relationship. Because initially, in the salvation trajectory, you have to have a relationship established with your heavenly creator. And so you come to this point of decision that, that must be made. Either uh, it builds up into you. It's, it's often a, an emotional experience that forces you to consider the options and make a decision whether or not you're going to receive Jesus or you're going to not receive Jesus. And as you know, I've made a distinction between receiving and accepting because nowhere in the New Testament does it say to accept Jesus what it says is to receive him, because if you accept Jesus, who's in the position of arbitration? Who's in the position of authority? You are, as long as you know, you, you're setting the criteria, saying, ah, oh, this is the line, the Maginot line that's got to be crossed to convince me I need to receive Jesus. So you're the arbitrator. Mm-hmm. 
Whereas when you look at it as receiving something you didn't earn, you're no longer in that seat. Jesus is in the mm, seat offering you this tremendous gift. Yeah, and you do that by believing, don't you? By believing. Yeah. All right, I'm talking to Dr. Greg Borgon, and we're talking about the trajectory of salvation. Now, in the pre-conversion stage, Greg, is that kind of a polite way? Because shouldn't we be saying at this point, you are dead in your sin? <laughs> that, well, you are. And I mean, you're, you, you've got original sin, but there is hope that God um, has reached out to you and that he is the hound of heaven, as he's been called on occasion. He's never going to give up until your appointed time to leave this earth. So he's going to give you these multiple opportunities to receive him because of his unconditional love for you, genuine concern for your well-being and welfare, even if you're unlikable, Bill. God loves us unconditionally. Why did you look at me when you said that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll let the people draw their own conclusion. Okay, thank you. All right. <laughs> so I call that particular stage along this trajectory um, a the former stage. Now, what I want people to understand is that salvation is a process. Now, I don't want anybody to have a heart attack. We're not talking about eternal security. That's guaranteed once you receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. But it also says in Scripture that you need to work out your salvation, which, which indicates that it's a process leading to spiritual maturation, to growth, and ultimately to glorification. So let's move to the second um, stage along this trajectory. And that's actually called conversion. So, in effect, you come to a point where you realize, even though you might not call it this, but you need to repent. There needs to be a reckoning. There needs to be an understanding that your sin has caused you to be alienated from your Creator. And so it says in Acts 3.19, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Now, here's the beauty of this whole thing, that when you receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, it says eight places in Scripture that God places your sin behind him. And he actually uses that phrase, he blots it out. We remember it, but he doesn't consider it any longer. And so it's blotted out. It was nailed to the cross. That's why Scripture says that he has paid for your sin, past, present, in future. So here we are at this, this next stage of conversion that begins with prevent, uh, repentance and then moves on to confession in Romans 10, 9, and 10. Powerful passage. It says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart, there's that phrase again, heart, which is a metaphor for your central beliefs, your core values, your worldview, your motives, your soul. Another word for soul. Mm-hmm. You believe in your soul that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's this momentary uh, um, uh, period or this event called conversion along this trajectory of salvation that ushers in all kinds of things of benefit to your life. So, again, it says, believe in your heart or believe in your soul. Now, the Greek word for believe is pisteo, which means simply to trust and rely on and cling to for all you know him to be at that moment. You're reaching out not as a mental affirmation he existed, but you are actually going to trust and rely on and cling to Mm -hmm. Jesus that you know and receive him as your Savior and Lord. Powerful, powerful passage. Greg, one little illustration I, I like is the three frogs on a log. 
one decides to jump, how many are left? And the answer is three. Yeah. <laughs> Although one said he was going to jump, he didn't do it. You know, so it's who, who makes that commitment? Who yeah. makes that step of faith? Yeah. Have you put your faith and trust in Christ or are you sitting on the log talking about it? You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's a three-dimensional process. I mean, you're talking about emotion, you're talking about intellect, and you're talking about will. So it's like marriage. I mean, intellectually, she's the right one. She's articulate. She's beautiful. She's bright. So intellectually, yeah, she looks like the right one for me. Emotionally, you love her. And you hmm. feel attracted to her. But nothing consummates the marriage like an act of will when you ask her to marry you. Mm-hmm. So it's the act that makes the transition or, or, or crosses you over. So here we have this moment where you receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. And, you know, I, I think the church, the Western church, has often made it a two-step process of receiving him as Savior one day, and then someday down the road you'll finally capitulate, you'll bend your knee, and you, you'll, you'll, say, you'll recognize I'm under new management, and you'll embrace him as Lord. But it was never meant to be a two-step process. That it says in Romans 10, 9, 10, Savior and Lord, that you recognize at that very moment you are under new management. Mm-hmm. That not only are you saved and and some benefits accrue to your account, but that you have an obligation and responsibility to live in accordance with what you've been given. All right. We're talking about the trajectory of salvation with Dr. Greg Borgon. We're going to take a little break, and we'll be right back. When you sponsor a child in need, you change their life. Your child learns that God loves them more than they can imagine and that he has special plans for their life. Your child gets help with school and is taught leadership, life skills, and how to overcome poverty and succeed. Your child gets nutritious food and vital medical care that often saves lives. You might not be able to change the world, but for one child, you can change theirs. Meet the kids. Find your child at MyFaithRadio.com. My guest and friend in studio is Dr. Greg Borgon. We're talking about the trajectory of salvation. Very interesting topic, and I love the way he's uh, divided it into four parts. Question that just came in, Greg, and aren't we also talking about dying to a part of ourself, dying to the sinful nature in order to be born again new? Yeah, I mean, there's a progressive or a incremental giving of of yourself. In other words, what you're doing is you're laying what you know yourself to be at the foot of the cross, giving that up and receiving back who God created you to be. But it also says in Scripture that with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, we're being changed into his likeness from one degree to another. And it comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So it's incremental. Mm-hmm. It's a, Because when God starts to work with you, he's dealing with the big pieces first. And as you grow in the Lord, he's starting to burrow down into the more subtle, the more uh, non-distinct elements of your character. Yeah, the nuances. The nuances mm-hmm. and the details. And so that's an incremental process. That's what spiritual maturation is all about. But it's the gospel that saves. And what is the gospel? We find that in 1 Corinthians fifteen three through 6. And this is Paul speaking, for I deliver to you as the first importance of what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cyphus, uh, Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, 
though some have fallen asleep. So this gospel that we're embracing, this whole idea of uh, what it really means, it, it's not just, again, as we talked about, that what accrues to your account, the benefits, but the obligations now that you claim the name uh, that you're representing the king. So I, I think there's no better passage, in my view, that, that talks about the gospel amplified than Titus 2, 11 through 14. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, that being Jesus Christ, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce. And here's the obligations again, once you receive the, the gift of the free gift of salvation, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed appearing of our great God and Savior. There's the deity then, God and man, our great God and Savior. That's why he can save us because he's God in the flesh. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his very own, an own possession who are zealous for good works. So that's the gospel amplified. So at the moment of conversion, several things are given to you instantaneously. We haven't got time to go through all of them, but I'll just rattle them off. Okay. Justification, just as if you'd never sinned. You're being seen through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Redemption, you've been redeemed, you've been bought with a price to glorify God in your body. Reconciliation, now your, your relationship with your Heavenly Father is established. And then there's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, evidence, the guarantee of your salvation. And then there's the regeneration. You're given a new heart and the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit to start living in accordance with who you say you are. And then there's adoption as sons and daughters. And then there's this wonderful thing called kingdom citizenship you find in Philippians 3.20 that says we're no longer of this world, Bill. We've been given a new passport. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. We'll be seen by the world as sojourners, aliens, and foreigners, but not in the kingdom of God. We're to go ahead and be in the world, but not be of the world for the sake of the world. And so that's what it means. We represent the king to a fallen world, but we're not of this world because we hold now a new passport. It's called the kingdom of God. So that, that, to me, is just so powerful. Which doesn't have to be renewed every 10 years. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. Like For ours does. $168. And then you're also given the seed of the fruit of the Spirit, which I've often viewed as the values that are on the heart of God or the character of God. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So you're given that in seed form that you have to cultivate so that it produces 30, 60, 100-fold. And the degree to which you manifest the fruit of the Spirit will determine who takes notice of that the fact that you are part of the redeemed, that you're mm-hmm. from the kingdom of God. It's only that evidence when they see that fruit displayed in bold relief do they recognize something's different here. Mm-hmm. All right, and then, of course, it's all towards Christ-likeness. That's what Ephesians four eleven through 16 says. As a matter of fact, there's certain things that we do, and in verse 13 and verse 15, Paul kind of repeats himself, In other words, he's saying that we're to grow up into Christ, that through our personalities and our unique wiring, people are to see Christ in us. We're to become Christ-like. So that's all a part of this conversion experience. These things that I've just described to you happen instantaneously. What a gift package. What a gift package. Then we move on to the next stage, the present stage, which, okay, now I've received Jesus as Savior and Lord. This stage is called sanctification. The very first stage was called former the second stage, conversion, which we've just discussed, and now we're in the sanctification stage. In other words, working out our salvation. So we're born again. 
Yep. And we've received this beautiful package you just described. Yep. Now we've got our everyday working out our, our, our faith. That's right, our working out our, okay. our salvation. So what does that really mean? When we talk about the present, when we say work out the it actually comes from Philippians chapter 2, uh, verse 12 and 13. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, that has nothing to do with, with works that lead you to eternal security. It has everything to do with working out in terms of the fruit of the Spirit, what it looks like to be a follower of Christ, to mature in Jesus over time, to taking advantage of of what the Spirit gives you, the fact that you are given everything you need to live a life of godliness, so why not appropriate it? Mm-hmm. Why not start going ahead and acting on it? Why go ahead and live in the misty lowlands of mediocrity because you forgot to fly like an eagle? Why don't you go ahead and start living like it? And so that's the whole process. So it, inv- it involves fellowship, aligning yourself with people who are a part of the kingdom of God, uh, Bible study, which goes beyond just hearing the Word and reading the Word. It means studying it. It means memorizing it. It means meditating on it because it's the only offensive weapon you have. Amen. It's part of the armor of God, which Ephesians 6 talks about that you uh, need to put on the armor. Everything else is defensive, but it's the Word of God in terms of the sword of the Spirit is the only offensive weapon. And it's since it is the offensive weapon, it is the one that's attacked by the enemy. Because the last thing he wants is for you to become adept at handling the sword of the Spirit. Because you become his formidable foe. Mm -hmm. So in this growing process, we're talking about witnessing, we're talking about service, we're talking about stewardship. The fact that uh, we're talking about your spiritual gifts, your natural abilities, your acquired skills, your talents, um, and your resources. Financial as well as as, uh, your spiritual gift resources. And then it talks about the fact that... Um, you have this great commandment to love others, to love God, first of all, and to love others. And it, actually, it's summation of the Ten Commandments. To love mm-hmm. God was a summation of the first four commandments, the of the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament, the Decalogue. And to love others is uh, fulfilling the last six commandments. So loving God and loving others. And then there's allegiance. You have to realize you're under new management. So you have to plant that flag and then it's living a life of faithfulness, and mm. then we'll talk about obedience in a second. Yeah, Greg, thank you so much. Uh, we are one away from covering all four in the trajectory of salvation, but <laughs> it's like you to get wound up, and then we don't get finished, so I'm sorry about that, but we'll, we'll right. cover it next time. We will take a short break and be back with more in just a minute. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.